you. Oh yeah, I'm talking to you because you're listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today my own writing, as we get into yet another part of an eye for the peculiar. Before I start, I wanted to discuss two topics. I'm going to move my microphone. Bear with me, people. Bear with me. Okay. Last night, my wife and I saw a movie that I did not know was by Ethan Cohen. I knew that Ethan Cohen was kind of breaking out on his own away from his brother Joel and putting out a movie, but I didn't realize until I looked up after the movie that I was looking, I was watching the new Ethan Cohen movie. It was called Drive Away Dolls. And I wrote a review for it on my Facebook, and I'm going to read that now since none of you have, well, with the exception of a couple of you, none of you have access to my Facebook to read such things. So, unbeknownst to me, we saw Ethan Cohen's first solo feature film last night. And it is the second movie that was so bad that we walked out before the end. My first comment outside the theater was, I'd rather rewatch Madam Webb. If you think straight women writing man-on-man romance is problematic, wait until you see what a straight man does with lesbians. Given that I enjoyed most Coen Brothers films, this felt more like a Coen Brothers parody, so Joel is sorely missed. But I don't know how much he can help Ethan with the campy writing, bad acting, and rushed pace. For... A movie that's less than two hours long with the sensibility of a coke addict, I tried waiting to see if it got good until almost the end. My wife wanted to leave within 10 minutes. The big names like Pedro Pascal and Matt Damon are barely in the movie, and for some reason Miley Cyrus shows up in one of the random acid trip transitions. The first scene is so hammy that I thought one of the protagonists was a writer and would cut into them being interrupted mid-sentence. Nope. After a cheesy Pedro Pascal death scene, we cut to two ladies taking a trip to Flavortown with a phone constantly interrupting their moans that make porn sound subtle. I've never been so disinterested in seeing nude scenes. If you must know my ranking, I'd put this at the bottom of the Coen Brothers filmography under Ballad of Buster Scruggs and True Grit. I also add A Serious Man to that bottom list because I watched A Serious Man back in August or September and I hated it. Second point of business prior to the reading today, I posted a TikTok and, you know, I have over 500 followers on TikTok now. Kind of a big deal, you know, (laughs) but, you know, a few people responded. I asked because I have garnered a small fan base thanks to TikTok for my music under the name Lurking Vowel and You know, I I am starting to actually make more money through my music than my writing lately, which is nuts. So I asked, would you want me to record a new album or just keep releasing singles, you know, every few weeks? And literally everyone who responded said album. So look forward to album number 60 from me pretty soon. But I have a lot of ideas for it. And all of them will probably be thrown out the window. When I was recording what I intended to be my 60th album in January, I ended up throwing away every single track. And it started with a song that was 
based around on the shoreline by Genesis because we're all a bunch of fucking thieves. And it was just bad, you know? Without Phil Collins and Tony Banks, it was just bad. And then I recorded a bunch of songs with bass as the lead instrument first and then added guitar on top. And, you know, that worked for some of my instrumental experimental stuff back around 2014, but in 2024, not so much. And I, I want to move away from you in, using chorus on so much stuff because that's what the kids like. You know, they like the chorusy, clean, syrupy guitar. But I, I think I want to move more towards just clean guitar. Maybe take out a lot of the delay and reverb. Maybe some acoustic stuff. But I know one thing is that I have to leave Robert Fripp behind. Recently, I put out a single... It's actually two songs as a single. And I added that Robert Fripp sound on top of the first one. And when I released it, I was like, you know, this doesn't work as well as if I just had it without that guitar. So the second track, which is just the first track slowed down, but without that guitar on top, to me it's better. My wife has been listening to a lot of Dark Side of the Moon lately. So I'll probably have a little bit more David Gilmore influence than anything else. And another thing that I want to work out more of is the dynamic range of switching from recording with a microphone and amplifier and guitar versus just a guitar into a laptop with a guitar processor. Because, yeah, I can get cleaner, more well-produced stuffed that way, but there's something about recording with the room sound... It's just, I don't know, it's just different. It's sort of like the difference between my Roland Jazz Chorus and my Marshall Amp. Yes, their Jazz Chorus sounds great, and it excels at pretty much everything, but the Marshall, the tube amp, there is something special about that sound, and not only the sound of a, a genuine tube amp, but also the sound of it in the room and with that microphone in the right spot it's not going to sound as it's not going to sound as clean and production savvy, sure, but there's some there's just something about it and it works and it inspires me. A lot of the stuff that I recorded on the Nero soundtrack was done that way, and that's got some of my favorite stuff on it. Anyway, we're almost 7 minutes in. Let's start the reading. Last week I left off where Steve Sebastian was going to meet Irvin And so, let's start there. People look at a young man like Adrian and wonder where his parents went wrong. I simply see a blind spot. Some people grow up with the best parents, and that's why they turn out rotten. Irvin doesn't get brought up by anyone either. He's simply another son of Eugenia Berman. Unlike Eric, Irvin has been in private practice since 2009. He's a defense attorney, and based on his online legal profile where he gives advice to people... He's a former police officer with a cynical side for law enforcement. All the trials I see in his history are for murders and sex crimes. Eugenia apparently saw something in Eric that she couldn't find in Irvin. Um, I'm going to interject here because, for one thing, I've been thinking about how to do do Irvin's voice on here because I did Eric's a certain way and, you know, these are influenced by real people. And with Irvin, that description is pretty on point. Um, but 
I don't know what I I reveal in the book, so I guess I should just keep reading. But you know, with the the whole private practice thing and being a former cop, uh, he was also the the person he's based on in real life was also in the military, stationed in Korea in the either late eighties or early nineties, and then went into law enforcement and then became a detective. And then apparently because he couldn't get um, some sort of promotion that he'd been vying for, that he was allegedly the most you know, valuable candidate for, he went to law school. And then, you know, the thing about that is, is that he was, I want to say mid to late thirties. So that's pretty impressive. Anyway, this is boring details that you don't care about. After making an appointment with Irvin's secretary, I drive back to I-85 through noon and then endure the rush hour traffic. If I had the money, I'd simply rent an apartment in town, given how often stories seem to call me back here. Irvin's office is in an old house near downtown Marietta. Given the decor, I think rich men accused of murder make for good business. My bachelor's degrees enviously gather dust. Mr. Sebastian, Irvin calls from his office. Yes, I get off the leather sofa in the waiting room, in the waiting area, people. My brother said I might get some FaceTime with you. Irvin takes his glasses off and remains seated when I offer to shake his hand. He got that he's got that lawyer look on his face whenever the media is present in court. They all practice in the mirror so people think they're perpetually pissed off. You're the last person on my list, I say. Frankly, I don't have anything terribly interesting. My editor wants me to move on, but said I should at least speak to you before I cover the next random murder in Atlanta. I'm familiar with your writing, Irvin says. You've never written about murder. You write about oddities like people who turn green, suburban prostitution rings, and politicians snorting meth. So you do have access to Google. I also read the paper. Did you happen to read your mother's will, though? Haven't had the pleasure. Then I guess you're indifferent to your brother holding on to everyone's inheritance. Mr. Sebastian, your tactics aren't going to work on me. I'm actually shocked you got information from Eric at all. He should have declined your meeting. But you haven't, I say. I want to ask you a few questions as well. Quid pro quo, I say. Originally, I had quid pro quo Clarice there, and there are a few other Silence of the Lambs references throughout the book, and I, in my third edit of the book, I took all that shit out. Who all have you spoken to? At this point, listing everyone I haven't spoken to takes as long as explaining why I spoke to who I did. I admittedly find myself sympathizing the most with Harrison, but he told me the fuck off. He didn't mention anything about his father the first time other than a disagreement with the family about the inheritance and shut me down when I wanted to talk more about him. That same attitude didn't apply to Eugenia. In fact, everyone eagerly spoke about her achievements and dealings. I know a good medium if you want to reach Bertie, Irvin says. Seems like a waste of time, I say. Reminds me of this conversation. By the way, how is Harrison? I'm not sure when you last saw him, but he seemed fine to me. He didn't want me around his wife, though. 
I only got to meet her once, Irvin says. That wasn't the first time someone in the family did Harrison dirty. When he was in high school, Bertie was in the hospital, so Eugenia and Bernard took turns picking him up. One day, Bernard didn't take him straight home, though. Oh, you know I gotta hear this, I say. Bernard drove him around the golf course where he and Mama lived, and he pointed out every time they passed a doctor or lawyer's home. Harrison was a kid, so he said he wanted to be a writer when he grew up, and Bernard told him there wasn't any money in that, and he'd be better off going to medical or law school. Apparently, Harrison stopped talking and didn't play into Bernard's game anymore, so when He finally did drop Harrison off. He got out of his truck, followed Harrison to the door, and told him, You know those buses the poor kids take? Well, they pay people to drive them. Why don't you take one home tomorrow? Nice guy, I say. Even Eugenia was a little taken aback since Bertie wasn't well. Harrison didn't have anyone else in his life. I know you're indifferent to all this money talk, I say. But are you... Aware that Eric isn't going to give Harrison Bertie's cut of the estate? Irvin's mustache might as well cover his entire mouth. He's not going to talk about it, but he will tell me exactly what he thinks without speaking. I think Bernard and Irvin share the sentiment that Harrison doesn't deserve this blacklisting, yet they're not going to step up to defend him. After all, Harrison could speak for himself if he wanted anything to do with them. I'm sure that hurts them though not enough to cross Eugenia even after death. The only person who needed the money was Bertie, Irvin says. I asked Mother for some help with my practice when I was getting on my feet and even offered to be taken out of the will. I ended up making out okay without her help, but she wouldn't have hesitated to help Eric or Bernard. I'll accept that answer, I say. What's your next question for me? Where'd you end up landing on Freddy's disappearance? How? Did someone at the sheriff's office contact you? Come on, Irvin holds up his hands. You talked to Harrison twice. You spoke to Frederick Sr. Hell, even our uncle Eric probably brought up Freddy. I haven't landed on anything, I say. He might be dead. He might be alive, but his father thinks if he was alive that he'd be a wealthy man and Eugenia wasn't about to offer him money to disappear. I don't think my mother would have had him killed, Irvin says. What I guarantee you haven't done is look into Freddy's character. If Harrison won't talk to anyone and Frederick declined to speak, then you can only go by what people, bystanders such as myself saw in Freddy through Bertie's relationship. There's no reason to believe he was or wasn't murdered. But you don't have any suspects, and your only indication that someone wanted him dead is because he once got into an argument with my mother about money? Did she ever relay to you what that argument or conversation was about? I ask. This was back in 92 or so, three years, give or take, when Freddy disappeared. Once Harrison was born, and Freddy had time to process what was going on, he tried talking to Eugenia about how he felt Bernard built Bertie out of her inheritance. Here comes this guy, 
who barely finished high school marrying the bo- his boss's daughter. And he, he's asking about money. He was an outsider. If Eric or I had asked about it, we wouldn't have drawn as much malice from our mother. See, Bernard was her firstborn son. Freddie was this 20-year-old kid. But Mama always thought lesser of her in-laws. She always disliked Eric's wife, but you'd never catch her saying a mean word to her because then Eric would raise hell. Bertie couldn't do that for Freddie. Mama would have fired her. One person floated the idea that Eugenia had Freddie killed, and Frederick only insinuated the theory. However, he's been missing a long time. If he was a 24-year-old man with seemingly limited intelligence, he wouldn't pull off disappearing unless he actually left Earth physically or spiritually. What are you hoping to gain from this investigation? Urban asked. A story, I say. This is how I pay my bills. How long until you figure out there's not much of a story to be told? It's my turn to ask a question, I say. But I don't think I'll leave this story behind disappointed. Fair enough. What do you think Bernard is going to do about his share of the inheritance, I ask. Knowing my brother, he'll stop talking to Eric once and for all. Without our mother, there's no reason for us all to get together anymore, so it's not like he's going to miss out on Christmas. Why the hell do you Burmans keep bringing up Christmas? It was the one time of the year we almost always came together these last few years. For a long time, we'd go over to Mama's house solely because she invited us all to dinner. As she got older, the invitations were less frequent, so it got narrowed down to holidays. What did you make about... Hold on. Irvin holds up his forefinger. What do you expect to come of all this? Depending on the outcome, I imagine you Burmans will continue to live your odd lives. I meant the outcome. If I find that Freddy was murdered, I imagine whoever killed him and ordered him to be killed will be put in jail. Otherwise, we find Freddy and he's living in Hawaii sipping margaritas on the beach. Last question, Irvin says. Oh man, I say, there are so many. If Freddy's van was still on the property when he was reported missing by his father, wait, why wouldn't Bertie be the one to report him missing? Is that your question? No, I say. Bertie was living in an apartment with Harrison because they were separated. Right, I say. And now I'm wondering why the police didn't have any phone records for Freddy in his file. Okay, detective, Irvin says. Are you going to ask me something? Do you think maybe Bertie did it? Bertie? Irvin asked. She was five feet tall and weighed about five pounds. How would Bertie kill her husband? I don't know. A gun, knife, poison, crossbow, blunt object. She couldn't have strangled him, but... She's still the number one suspect in his disappearance, at least by police standards, which appear to be lacking considering his one-page file. It's where I can't talk to you anymore, Steve. I need you to go now. So this is when everything turns a bit more noir. In terms of that last conversation, I 
I think I represented the the man that Irvin is based on well. Uh, he comes across as, you know, at least kind of while reserved, a bit thoughtful of what Steve is trying to do. Although Irvin does show back up later in the book uh, in a different capacity than you would expect. Anyway, some missing person cases come back to light after decades and usually with bad results. As forensics get better, the more likely murderers and kidnappers are to get caught. Freddy's file doesn't include the VIN number of his van or where it was towed. Even if Harrison talks to me, he's not going to know or remember where a van went. If I show up to the house, the current owners aren't going to let me look for bloodstains. The Trulia photos of the property show new floors put in with the last five years. This is all assuming that Freddy was killed at all and that it happened in the house. By the way, this little tidbit about the Trulia photos, I looked at the house that I'm speaking about. By the way, there was no murder committed in it, but I did look at the house online and the new owners did remodel it some. This is all assuming that Freddy was killed at all and it happened in the house. Someone might have pulled him out of the street and shot him in the woods. Frederick alluded to having more than one son, though no one mentioned Freddy having a brother, sister, or even who his mother is or was. If I can get an officer to escort me as a member of the press, then I shouldn't worry about Frederick shooting me on sight. But I need to talk to him, and i got to come up with a way to entice him. Devonwood Residence, Frederick answers. Mr. Devonwood, I say. I know you said not to call again, but I have some information about your son, Freddy, and I I need your help. What you got? he asks. Well, as I told you before, my name is Steve Sebastian, and I work for the Associated Press, so I, I don't want there to be any confusion as to what my intentions are. I spoke to three of the five Berman children and obviously can't talk to Bertie, so that puts me at a serious disadvantage. Anyway, last time we spoke, you hinted that someone may have murdered your son, and I brought this up directly to Irvin Berman. Both Irvin and Bernard got really tight-lived about Freddie and Bertie, and Harrison wants nothing to do with it. The police file on Freddie is useless to me. I know you probably think it's ludicrous, but I think they're all protecting Bertie. You think Bertie killed him? I'm leaning that way, yes. Well, I can help you, but I don't know how much. Why do you think Bertie didn't report him missing before you did? If he was out of the picture, it was good news, I guess. Do you know why she wanted to leave him? He blamed Eugenia. I think he was lying, though. The last time I spoke to Bertie... She was more concerned about getting Harrison away from Freddy. Did she fear for her safety? I can't say one way or the other, but I wouldn't be surprised. By the way, what happened to the van on the property, I ask? Freddy's mama sold it to her ex-husband, Paul. Are any of these people still alive? Carrie passed away last year. Freddy died of cancer in the mid-2000s. His daughter likely sold the van for scrap or some crackhead to live in. I think her name was Sharon. None of this leads me closer to a conclusion. All the places where I might find evidence basically no longer exist. Too many people died too. 
Do you happen to remember anything Freddy said to you before he died that might have hinted he was in danger or ready to leave? He didn't want to divorce Birdie. That's about all I can remember about him talking about. Let's say Birdie went to the house and killed him, I say. A little woman like her wouldn't be able to clean up the mess and carry out the body without anyone noticing. No, they didn't have any neighbors. You could walk outside buck naked and no one would see you back then. By the way, that's untrue. Um, But, you know, this is fiction. I can say what I want. Who would she call for help, I ask? Probably Eugenia. I think she was still in her 50s, so she could have helped Birdie move a body. Anytime Birdie had a problem, she called her mama first. If any of the Bermans know about this, they're protecting their mother and sister's memory. Even Harrison might be bound to some sort of unspoken family promise. If it came out that Eugenia was an accessory to murder, then residents' families may not feel that the Taylor nursing home is serving their best interest. Do you know what's strange about Harrison? He doesn't want to accept his rightful inheritance from Eugenia's estate, and his uncle isn't sure he'd even give it to him. Harrison always been different. He wants to move on with his life is all. I think he's owed a lot more than money, and his family, namely his uncles, finally getting their heads out of their asses might be worth more than any inheritance. But the one person he'd want to hear from is gone. Or at least, that's what I think. Who is that one person, I ask? Eugenia. You think he still feels some kind of way about her? I suspect he does. You know, she'd always go to bat for him in some ways, but scold him for other things. She held Bertie's job over her head, but when Harrison stopped talking to her, Eugenia didn't have anything to get him back to her. She'd rather blackmail her family into loving her than say she was sorry. No one can make that happen, so Harrison might need to settle for money. I certainly would, although living with the knowledge that your mother murdered your father might require more money than he's entitled to. Who is Freddy's brother, by the way? I ask. Joaquin, Frederick says. Good luck talking to him because he won't talk to me. Do you know where I can find him? Antioch Baptist Cemetery. He died of an oxycodone overdose in, let's see, 2002. For a moment I see Joaquin living on a gravel road in a one-bedroom house, confessing that he killed Freddy before I spray him with pepper gel and run out to my car as gunshots shatter my rear bumper while I call 911. Instead, he's another example of why I should give up. Discouragement rarely affects me, though. By the way, I think I pointed this out in the previous episode, that little daydream that Steve has, that was something that I did consider. I thought that Joaquin should be the guy who killed him and that Steve would show up at his house and that's how he would find out, la-di-da. But it didn't, it didn't really work for me, and I'm glad I didn't do it. Uh, aside from that, Joaquin, uh, the person he's based on, is still alive. My call waiting pops up on my iPhone screen as I contemplate the next question. I'm sorry, Frederick. I'm going to have to call you back. All right, I'll talk to you later, Steve. When I answer the call, there's rummaging of paperwork on the other end. Hello? Mr. Sebastian, this is Irvin Berman. The world-famous attorney? I ask. 
I'm calling you to let you know that Bernard, Barry, and I are taking our little brother to court. Oh, well, thank you for thinking of me, I say. We had to pull Mama's financial records, and with some help from Noel, we found that my mother withdrew $20,000 from the business account on February 15th, 1995. I guess we need to determine if she used that to bribe Freddy or hire a hitman. In any case, there's no way Bernard didn't know about twenty grand going missing, so it seems he knows something you don't. Does he want to talk to me? I ask. Your story on the family is going to be published in two parts. Do you need a, to get a pen and paper? I remember everything, Irvin, I say. Well, I hope you remember that your first part needs to steer clear of any allegations about my mother being involved in anything heinous. That's for your second part. The first part should detail Eric Berman withholding his mother's estate from their her children. Have those pigs stopped squealing? I ask. <laughs> that, okay, so I did manage to get one uh, bad reference to Sons of the Lambs. Of course, it's have those lambs stop screaming, but... If you do this, Bernard will tell you everything he knows. See, I need some assurance that he actually knows something. He knows everything. This evening, I type up the story regarding Eugenia's estate without including Bernard pulling the same move as Eric back in 1991. The only mention of Bertie is that she passed in 2020, and therefore Eric owes her son Harrison part of the estate. Considering all the information I heard about the family, part one of the story is boring. Still, I can make some money for the submission and justify the last few days of research. If I ever write a book, the Burmans deserve their own chapter. By the way, that that him mentioning a book, that comes into play later, and Greenskin is referenced as a book in this novel. So... While it takes place in the same universe as the book Greenskin that I wrote, in this book, the book Greenskin is credited to Wayne Pallidus as his autobiography. Bernard agrees to meet me in his office regarding the twenty grand and Eugenie's involvement with Freddy's disappearance. I need a follow-up to the case against Eric as well. Though, that may be months from now. Since the article came out this morning, I'm sure the Bermans happily accept their family drum up on the clothesline for all to see. It's all about a united front until money is involved. If you're hungry or thirsty, I can tell the women in the kitchen to make you a tray, Bernard says. The tea is really good. He holds up a styrofoam cup and rustles the ice. I ate before I came, I say. Next time, though. So uh, I read the article, and I think the public opinion might sway in our favor. You know, I'm actually glad you mentioned Harrison, because if we can get him to show up on Bertie's behalf, we have a stronger case. He didn't seem interested, but you never know. I suppose whatever info you have on Eugenia and this missing 20 grand might sway him. Uh-huh, Bernard nods. You do have information for me, don't you? I ask. So, Mama told me everything. Bertie had an issue getting Freddie to sign on the divorce paperwork, and he contested things through his attorney. Mama figured it was about 
money since he brought up Bertie's inheritance back in 92. The bank called me the day she withdrew the 20 grand. She figured that was a year's salary for him and it might sway him to leave Bertie and Harrison alone. Bernard holds up a sheet of paper and at the top I see it's a bank statement. While there was 20 grand withdrawn from the account, it was deposited back the next day. I'm curious why the bank honored her request to take that much money, but I wasn't there. The rich get what they want all the time. So, you can see he didn't take it, Bernard says. This really, this doesn't really dispel my theory that Bertie might have killed him, I say. Now, Steve, you know that if I withheld evidence for murder, I'd be considered an accessory to the crime. But there was never a murder investigation. Bernard pulls out a folder of photographs developed at Eckerd's Pharmacy. By the way, I still have a folder of Eckerd's Pharmacy photos. There's a timestamp on each one for February 15, 1995, except for a few in the back containing other dates. Harrison, Bertie, and Eugenia are in the ones from February with the sign that reads Dixieland Stampede in the background. So Bertie wasn't even in the, the state when Freddie went missing, or at least has an alibi. How could Eugenia be in these if she was in Georgia trying to bribe Freddie the same day, I ask. She took them to Pigeon Forge that afternoon. I'm the one who deposited the 20 grand back into the company account because I took it from her. So who is to say that Freddie wasn't killed on the 14th, 15th, or even the 16th? Check the last photo, Bernard says. I recognize Harrison from the other photos. I don't initially rec realize that Freddie stands in the picture with an arm around him. They stand outside the house I found online while researching Freddie's property records. The date listed is February 13, 1995. Why didn't you turn these over to the sheriff's office, I ask. I found them in Bertie's desk in 2020 after she passed. Now, I'm not saying these pictures exonerate anybody, but I don't believe it was in Bertie's character to hurt anybody. What if it was in self-defense, I ask. Why would she want to cover up self-defense? Harrison, why wouldn't she? He's pretty smart, or at least smart enough to figure out whether or not his mother killed his father. He'd know her better than anyone else. Irvin and Bernard got me to write their hit piece against Eric, and the world sees Eugenia's family lack a pristine reputation. However, I only found a connection to a missing person and wild mass guessing for Freddy's whereabouts. It sounds like Eugenia was the last person to see Freddy alive, though, I say. That we know of. I think you know something that you're not saying. Maybe you killed Freddy. I barely knew him, Bernard says. He was distant, he was distant to us after 92. Well, if he doesn't show up soon, I might have to print that Bertie is the top suspect for his disappearance. Do you think Harrison and the Bermans will unite to fight another legal battle? I think you need to look for reasons aside from the divorce that people wanted Freddie gone. His brother, mother, and wife are dead. I can only talk to the living. There are 
are some people you haven't reached out to yet. Like who? No, Bernard, I say. I retain no loyalties to you or anyone in your family. If you're not going to give me some more information now, I'm going to send my editor the article I wrote about Bertie killing her husband. By the way, he's bluffing. He, he didn't write anything. It wasn't Bertie, Bernard says. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I don't want to keep going in circles anymore, I say. I get up to leave and Bernard holds up the bank statement again as if it's supposed to mean something else. I was the last person to see Freddy. Dun, dun, dun. Why are you admitting to the... Why, why are What are you admitting to here? I ask. I didn't lie about him refusing Eugenia's money, he says. But I pulled the money I'd set aside for Harrison out of the bank. Have you got any bank statements to back that up? I ask. On top of a stack of files, Bernard slides off a folder and clasps it in both hands. You cannot publish this, he says. You need to specify what you want off the record, I say. These documents are all of my bank statements from the account I intended for Harrison when I opened it in 1991. Why did you open an account for Harrison? I ask. The same reason I've been sending Freddie money since 1995. I didn't want to give Bertie her share of the estate because I didn't trust Freddie. That's why they got the trailer instead, and it's also why I'm willing to sue my brother on behalf of Harrison. I got the impression you didn't like Harrison, I say. We all love Harrison! And I believe he loves us too, but that doesn't mean we always like each other. So, I have to take a a moment out of this and address this. First of all, um, given what I know about this family, uh, of course, this this didn't happen. There was no uh, account set aside, or an account started in 1991 with inheritance put in it. No. Uh, The person in question really did get screwed out of uh, a reasonable inheritance. They really just got the trailer, to my knowledge. But, you know, I thought that it would be interesting to give Bernard a bit more of, less of a, a shady characteristic and more of a, a guy with good intentions characteristic, because that's the thing about all these people. A lot of them have, all of them really have good intentions. None of them wanted to screw over anybody. Now in the book, you know, that's a different story, but in real life, everyone thought they were doing the right thing. I sit back down as I consider why Bernard kept this from me. He'd rather, I think Freddie was murdered than bribed to leave town. Where the hell is Freddy then? So, another thing I need to address. I really did think about having multiple different stories. Uh, I, I, did, I hadn't choosed one. I was thinking about uh, Birdie having murdered him. Of course, you can't prosecute someone who's dead. I thought about... I even thought about Harrison killing him and Birdie and Eugenia covering it up because he was so young, but no... When Mama left town with Bertie, I went to Freddy's house. And here's what I told him. I'll offer you 
$200,000 if you disappear. I got a bank account in my name that you'll have full access to and I'll send you money every month. Instead of pulling thousands of dollars out of the bank like Mama did, I sent him money under the guise of sending it to myself. You're not trying to hide it from the IRS then, I say. The point was to hide it from everyone else. I don't look at where he spends the money and I haven't checked the balance in years. It's best that I only send him the money every month. 200000 has sustained him this long, I ask. It ran out a while ago. I started transferring my own money, but it's not for much longer, especially if you write about it. How long do I need to hold off, I ask. For Harrison's sake, I mean. Give me until this time next week, Bernard says. I think I should tell Harrison before you print any, anything. By the way, I did write a chapter from Harrison's perspective because I briefly considered changing the perspective of the narrative. We're on page 56 of the book, by the way. And this first part was just going to be from Steve Sebastian's perspective. And then the rest of the book would have been from other characters' perspectives. That didn't work for me. I've still got the chapter that I wrote sitting on here. Um, I kind of used it like mentally for reference to know what happened behind the scenes because Harrison does, of course, participate. I try not to leave Georgia for stories, especially since there are others in the AP covering them in their network. However, I found two good reasons to drive to Auburn today. The first being a physics professor who believes in the quantum black hole theory, which relates back to the Berlin Particle Collider incident in 2013. Dr. Stacy Newton, a man with an unusually feminine name, wrote a scientific article about the, uh, that most journals rejected in 2019. Since then, he believes that COVID-19 and the seeming way society is collapsing is a result of a dent in reality or something. I don't really care so much because I'm using his interview as an excuse to find Freddie Devonwood. Guest parking in Auburn is basically six parking spaces next to a random building, which are all taken, so I parallel park at a meter, which only allows 30-minute parking. I put in a dime so there's time to sit in the car and call the parking and transportation department, which directs me to a lot normally reserved for potential students and their families taking group tours. It takes me 20 minutes to find the Leach Science Center. By the way, uh, I've never been on Auburn campus, but uh, this is partially inspired by, either than me looking at a map, um, my own experiences at my school because there's no real visitor parking there. There are a few spaces in this random area, and then there are parking meters that will only let you park for I think 25 minutes at a time. It's fucking ridiculous. Dr. Newton's office has a desk, an old CRT television where a chair for students or guests should be, and an iMac. There are no books, photos, or even diplomas on the wall. When I knock on the open door, he looks at me without speaking through Roger Stone Bond villain glasses. Dr. Newton, I say. His mouth doesn't open as his stare-down tactic resumes. Steve Sebastian, we emailed each other all week about an interview. Ask me anything. His voice resembles a poorly intonated cello. 
So as the author and also the person reading this, what does a poorly intonated cello uh, sound like? Maybe, maybe a bit like this. Ask me anything. Is there anywhere I can sit? I ask. No. This bastard is not getting an unbiased article from me. I'm going to block his email after publication so I don't read his inevitable anger that I made him out to be a sociopathic almond joy. That's my funny way of calling him a nut bar like Garth and Wayne's World 2. You don't have anything to write with, Dr. Newton says. How many journalists do you know, Dr. Newton? I ask. Are we starting the interview? Can you provide a brief explanation of the quantum black hole theory? I ask. Such a complex concept deserves more than a few lines in your article, Mr. Sebastian. Try one line, I say. Think of it like a log line. Stephen Hawking. Nope. I shake my head. You're asking me to condense something that in over four decades we're still scraping at the surface of. A dime sliver of a layer off the surface. Don't you want people to understand? Because of the particle collider experiment in 2013, we changed time and multiplied its possibilities into new realities. Prior to 2013, we were on a straight path, but our train derailed. So because of a lab experiment, the world is going to end, I ask. Now, could you unpack that statement for me? I thought you wanted a log line. A log line is one sentence, doctor. I thought you were into publishing. A black hole is a place where things cease to exist yet multiply. It defies the laws of physics. Matter cannot be created or destroyed, yet a black hole does both. Several of us in the community warned against the particle collider because of that reason. What it did was well beyond the range of the lab possibly spread chaos throughout the universe. As such, there is no longer one Steve Sebastian. How many could there be, I ask. One, Dr. Newton rips off a sheet of paper. One, 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 and one. See these tally marks? How many are there? More than one. No. Six? There's one. Each one of them is singular, like a Roman numeral. You won't run into another Steve Sebastian in your lifetime. However, that doesn't mean there isn't another Steve. Meaning? You exist and these other realities too. It's the same you, but it's not the one, it's not the you standing in this office. And your proof of this concept, I ask, a black hole would make it possible for you to shift into another reality where you exist. And if you did, there'd still be only one of you. I think you'd have better luck proving heaven exists, I say. Now, Dr. Newton's less than personable quirk makes the Whataburger seem like a better venue for me to waste time before I head to the Bank of America off campus. He doesn't possess tangible evidence for his claims, which 
doesn't stop men with charisma, but he has all the charm of a swirling hookworm still warm from puppy's fresh shit. You realize that the Associated Press can't add any validity to your claims if you continue to make them without proof. Can you contest that the world changed for the worst after the incident? Dr. Newton asked. You should make that your log line. I need to go to my to find my car before 5:30. All right, I need to expl- I need to unpack this whole conversation and why I put it in the book. So it may seem like it has nothing else to do with the rest of the book, um, at least up to this point. So as you'll see throughout the novel, Steve interviews people. Uh, that's his job. He doesn't just interview the Burmans. The the book only begins with the Burmans. And the reason why I put this in here. Um, is because I needed a way to explain the rationale for Steve showing up in the novel Birch and Birch also showing up in their world. Okay. And there's also some, some, you know, weird, vague shit going on here um, beyond that. But, you know, I, I did a little, little bit of research, but it's also based on this interview from Mark Maron's podcast, with Zazie Beats, where she talks about this, and she's not a scientist, but I, I've always remembered her talking about it, and it's just kind of a way for for me to show the audience, okay, it is possible that this Steve Sebastian went to another dimension, or another version of him exists in another dimension, and he would meet Birch. Later on in the book, we'll see what happens. There's a line at the ATM, so I park and head over to the first SUV to see a woman glaring back at me. The next vehicle is a Toyota with an Auburn hang tag. After the Tri-Delta girl, a Ford Ranger from the 90s idles as a man wearing a camo baseball hat looks down at a cell phone. When I look, when I knock on the window, not look, Freddie looks up from his screen. Mr. Devonwood, I say. You're not going to find any money in Mr. Berman's account today. Steve Sebastian, Associated Press. You're trapped between two cars waiting in line. Have a minute to talk? What the fuck? He asked. Freddy, tomorrow I'm going to print a story that tells the world about Bernard Berman offering you 200 grand to leave Coweta County. And you allowed your own father to believe you'd been killed. If you try drive away i'm going to jump in the bed of your truck that manual stick shift isn't fast enough to flee without me tagging along freddie reaches over and unlocks the passenger side door i'm parked over there i point taking off his hat freddie rubs over his goatee and straight back to his hair since the last photo of harrison and freddie he's aged a bit more than 30 years I kind of figured the money would have stopped by now, Freddy says. I was only using it for what my paycheck can't cover. What do you do for work, I ask. I'm a mechanic. I make enough to get by without the extra money, but that was what kept my girlfriends happy. There are a lot of 50-something singles in Auburn, I ask. Why would I date someone my age when there's a revolving door of girls here? Still dating college days girls, Freddie? I trade up for a new model every couple years. 
This is what you've been doing since 95, I take it. Ain't a better way to live, but I guess I need a second job now. Freddy, I say, you've been a missing person and presumed dead for decades. There's no scenario where you get a second job. You're probably going to get arrested. If they can find me, you've got about 12 hours from this interview if you give me the answers I want. If I don't, I'll report you as soon as we stop talking. Guess you need to start asking the questions, Freddy says. Are you aware your wife died in 2020? I ask. I know about my brother, mother, wife, and her mother. I also read the announcement about Harrison's wedding. Do you consider any of that good news? I ask. What do you mean? You missed out on your son's life. When he lost Bertie, there wasn't any family to stand up for him. Eugenia banned Harrison from Bertie's funeral. His aunts, uncles, and cousins let her do that to him. It may be some small wonder that he accepted his part of Bertie's inheritance this week, but he he's owed a lot more than that. Specifically, 200 grand more. Hell, he went to college without the money, Freddie says. He made out better than me. That's your rationalization of abandoning him for money that was meant for him? Bernard told you that? Freddie asked. He told me that too, but I don't, I don't know that I believe him. They always made Bertie know she was at the bottom of the totem pole. It's not about Bertie or Bernard. How do you feel about leaving your family for money? I'm the one who filed for divorce, so it didn't make much difference where I was. I signed away full custody of Harrison. None of that's true, by the way. If Freddie is anything like his father, he may not be entirely honest about the past. Everyone led me to believe that Bertie left Freddie, and he wasn't willing to sign the papers. Some may think that it's human nature to be honest, but honoring the memory of a lost relative may result in some mistruths. Are there any copies of that paperwork? I ask. You can follow me to my apartment, Freddie says. Maybe later. Why would you want to leave Bertie and give up your son? That boy scared the hell out of me and Bertie wouldn't do nothing about it. Holding up his right arm, Freddie points out a scar running from his elbow to his wrist. It's thin and almost perfectly straight as if he scraped against a fence or sharp wood. He did that to me, Freddie says. Kitchen knife. Bertie said it was my fault. Why would he do that, I ask. That boy was born without a damn mind. He didn't have one to lose. So, he did it unprovoked? Bertie and I were hollering at each other and I threw a jar of salsa that broke against the wall. You threw it in what direction? Same direction as the wall, I guess. Do you think you might have aimed at Bertie or Harrison and missed? Well, it's been a while. I can't remember. You filed for divorce because you triggered a violent response from your son. Eugenia was always telling Bertie she needed to leave me anyway. So you made up the story about Harrison and the knife? Hell, I think I got this scar from work. I opened the passenger door and push it shut while unlocking my car. Hey! Freddy rolls down the manual window. You're not calling the cops, are you? No, just getting something. 
from my glove compartment, I pull out my Swiss Army knife and reel around to tear into Freddy's right front wheel. As he's getting out to do whatever the hell a man does when another man slashes his tire, I send the courtesy text message to Alabama State Patrol Master Sergeant John Edmund. Before I drove into Auburn today, I made sure Sheriff Bishop coordinated the arrest warrant with John in the event I discovered the missing person. I don't keep my pepper gel in my glove compartment since my profession frequently incenses people and I never know when someone might try to punch me. I'm getting in my car. I hold up the bottle. Good luck, Freddy. I wasn't bothering nobody and you came out of nowhere to fuck me over, he says. The state patrol car pulls up behind us and Freddy squeezes the side of his truck bed like he's bracing for a fainting spell. I snap a picture on my iPhone as Sergeant Edmund recites Freddy's rights and places him in custody. The first person I send the photo to is Bernard Berman. If you're curious about what happened in real life, so, of course, there was no disappearance. The The person that Freddy's based on did not just disappear. There was a divorce, and uh, he got remarried within a year. I think less than a year, honestly. And then... He was in um, that marriage for about four years, and then he got another divorce, and then he met another woman, got married, and then got divorced. He didn't go to Auburn and go through a spinning wheel or revolving door of college girls, although that would have been a better idea. Harrison is present in the courtroom during Freddie's arraignment. A gray-haired man with a distinct mustache and bright belt buckle, who I assume is Frederick, shakes Harrison's hand before sitting directly behind Freddie. The charges outlined by the state of Georgia are causing false report to law enforcement, false report of death, and fraud. I'm thinking that fraud might not stick since the prosecutor doesn't want to go after Bernard due to his connections in law and health care, or so I assume. When Harrison sees me, I wave and he nods without too much contempt. No one from the Berman families here, which... Almost surprises me. Freddy pleads guilty to the first two charges only, and the judge rolls his eyes while looking down at a report. His bond is set at $500,000, and that's lenient given the amount of money Bernard sent him. He'll definitely show up at the trial. Could we talk? I ask Harrison. Let's get a coffee over at the Leaf and Bean, Harrison says. By the way, the Leaf and Bean is a real place, if you didn't know, and I think it might be mentioned in a green scan. It's definitely mentioned in at least one of my previous short stories. I occasionally stopped in here during my work with Wayne or after meeting my friend Kurt, who owns Dungeon Comics. I seem to recall his ex-girlfriend Gwen wanting to come here instead of talking over the phone about her their story, though I met her when she was the cashier and Summer Pallidus worked as a barista. <laughs> yeah, I love that I inserted these two characters into this book. Kurt shows up a bit more, of course, and Kurt is uh, briefly in Greenskin and he is in the short story entitled Gwen, which is also where Gwen comes from. Summer, for those of you who are unaware, is the uh, in the second part of Greenskin, and she's 
my favorite character I've ever written. Harrison orders a chai latte and pulls Battleship off the bookshelf full of board games. As he sets up the board, I notice he has a peculiar way of leaning his head as if he's looking at everything from an angle. Everything I ask you is going to be off the record, by the way, I say. My editor wants me off your family's back. Well, at least you got two articles out of it, Harrison says. Not exactly midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. How do you feel about your father, I ask. Kind of indifferent since I don't really know him, Harrison says. I don't think he'll do much time, I say. If he's convinced of, if he's convicted of fraud, I imagine he will, but I don't see that happening. Did you speak with Bernard about it? I can't really be upset about him trying to look out for me. Freddie tried to tell me that he was the one who fought for divorce and that you cut him with a knife, so I concur with your sentiment. Mother never said a bad word about him when I was growing up. Nobody knew what it, what he was like until I was older and I brought it up. Brought what up, I asked. Let's say there was ample reason for my mother to leave him. Does any of this change how you see your family, the, the Bermans? No, Harrison says. Bernard lying to us doesn't change everything that led up to where I am now. Certainly not how they kept me from my mother's funeral. That was more than petty. It was the closest thing they could have done to stabbing me in the chest. I've always had one parent, one family member I could count on. I was never close to anyone like my mother. The Bermans are not a close-knit family where uncles take nephews on fishing trips or aunts make dresses for their nieces. I guarantee you I wasn't the only person absent from Eugenia's funeral. I was the only one not welcome. If not for the holidays at her house, my mother and I could have gone years without anyone calling us. It's not me alone that never felt important to them. My mother was the middle child until the end. You know what makes it worse? They sneer at me saying that even though they know it's true. Speaking of them, I say, what did it take for you to accept the inheritance? Bernard said he had really good news for me if I accepted my portion of the estate. One, he was going to help get my father arrested. Two, he was retiring as the administrator of the nursing home. His hand was forced on that one, though. Did he say anything else? I ask. No, he didn't apologize, Harrison says. I could have used that 200000 he gave to Freddie, although I'm putting all of this new money in the bank. What are your goals? I've never had any realistic goals. I got my master's because I wanted to teach. Then I found out there's a higher chance at being a rock star than being a college professor these days. After Harrison sinks my ships, I put a tent on the table and excuse myself so I can get back to Atlanta before nightfall. It's rare that I get to end a story on good terms with the person I interviewed, I say. I doubt you need it, Harrison says, but good luck. So, um, we're not quite done with part one of this novel yet, but uh, this is a really good stopping point because this is a, kind of a different plot point coming up. But anyway, um, I'd like to think that 
you know, one of the criticisms leveled at me in the past is that I uh, have cardboard characters, which is, I think is objectively false. Um, But with this, you know, all these characters, uh, Harrison, Irvin, Bernard, Eric, they all have distinct voices um, and goals, and you can sense that from how they speak. And then there's Steve. At this point, we don't really know anything about Steve. And that onion peel will come later. But I hope you've enjoyed everything so far in this book. Next week, it's going to get a little bit more wacky and noir-esque. So I hope you look forward to that. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Thank mm-hmm. you.